0: Hello, welcome to Central Valley Physicians Podcast. My name is Nicole Butler and I'm the Executive Director of Fresno Madera Medical Society and we're here today with Dr. Jonathan Grossman and we're going to talk about interventional pain management. Welcome, doctor.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um so this is a this is an interesting topic. I um you know, you're starting to hear more and more about um, chronic pain just in general conversation with with when it comes to healthcare. Um, so when I saw this topic, I was really interested Um, before, you know, I don't even typically know what the definition of interventional pain management is. Can you kind of tell me a little bit about what that is?
1: Yes. So interventional pain management means different things for different patients and for referring providers. Um, Patients have a wide variety of different pain conditions, which they are saddled with for long periods of time. They can range anywhere from Uh, conditions such as sciatica, neck pain, arm or leg pain, um, broken bones in their back, spinal stenosis, headaches. So chronic pain can take many different forms. Where interventional pain management plays a role uh, is in both a diagnostic and therapeutic approach to these pain conditions. So for example, An epidural steroid injection would be an example of an interventional pain procedure. It's an x-ray guided procedure that takes several minutes to perform. And the purpose of the procedure is to both treat the pain that the patient presents with. And in getting a response from that treatment, you are further verifying the the presumptive diagnosis um, that the patient was suffering from. That's not to say whether a procedure like that would provide long or short-term relief, um, but that is an example of an interventional pain procedure. Um, Other procedures would include uh, radiofrequency ablation, sometimes referred to as medial nerve neurolysis, uh, facet joint injections, Botox for torticollis or hemifacial spasm or migraine headache. Uh, treatment of symptomatic vertebral compression fractures with procedures called vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty. Uh, different types of interventional procedures for spinal stenosis can include insertion of an interspinous spacer. Um, spinal cord stimulation is also a therapy that has been around for many years and has many different applications depending on how the patient presents and what is indicated for them.
0: That was a easy question, right? <laughs> very easy let's and there's so many different areas of of chronic pain i i don't i know if we go through all of them we'll be here all all afternoon so let's let's take one you know let's take back or lower back pain because i think that is the one that um hurts me sometimes so and i kind of use myself and a lot of these podcasts just kind of like hey i've got this going on but i think that one too is it can give um whoever's listening kind of an idea of an example so So let's walk me through it. Someone comes into your office; they're referred to you by a physician. So somebody's not self-referring themselves to you, correct?
1: Actually, depending on a patient's insurance, many of them may self-refer. Okay, um, but some of them do come as referrals from their primary care providers as well.
0: Okay, so they come to you; they've had this this what they think is a chronic pain in their back for um, a long period of time. You know, what's what's the first thing, or what do you do as when they come in?
1: That's a great question. My job when a patient comes into the office is not to tell them what to do or why they need to do it. It is to make sure that I understand through a thorough history and physical exam what I think is going on and then offer them treatments that I think may be beneficial. I want them to leave well-informed so that whatever decision they make is the right decision for them. That's my first job. That is my passion and I think good history and physical and an identification of what we think is going on, and then managing a patient's expectations with whatever I offer—that is the key to really success in treating a patient. And it's not about a procedure or not getting a procedure. It's about a, a relationship that you form with the patient, so that they really appreciate it. it's it's there. I'm there for them. Um, so they come in with back pain. I ask them quite a few questions about how long they've had it, where they feel it, does it spread anywhere or not, what are the activities that make it better or worse, what treatments have been tried with success or lack of success. Um, And there's other questions involved, but that would be kind of the the short version. Uh, Then a thorough physical exam to see what all might be going on. Uh, Unfortunately, folks with chronic back pain, it's usually not just from one thing by the time I see them. Uh, There may be one or two major issues, but then there can be secondary and compensatory issues. You know, if you think about um, you twist your ankle and it swells up, so you load shift off of that ankle. Well, then you can have the other ankle and knee get kind of sore if you keep leaning on it because you're trying to protect the injured ankle. So those would be examples of compensatory pain. Uh, The same thing happens in the back. For example, uh, someone has spinal stenosis. So spinal stenosis affects Millions of Americans. It's newly diagnosed uh, in several million patients every year in this country alone. Spinal stenosis doesn't actually cause symptoms in most patients. It's more of a imaging study observation. When it affects the patients is when we want to treat the patients. So spinal stenosis can present as back and/or radiating buttock, thigh, and leg pain. It's a condition that affects patients predominantly when standing and walking, and it gets better for the most part when the patients either lean forward, um, for example, over a shopping cart when they're out shopping, so that's called the shopping cart sign, or when they sit down. So you're actually taking pressure off of the stenosed or narrowed segment or segments in the lower back. So that's a, that's a pretty classic presentation. Uh, there are numerous options for those patients, and the spectrum of treatment would be everything from physical therapy perhaps diagnostic injections to add clarity to the level or levels that affect them most severely. Uh, for folks that have leg weakness, bowel or bladder incontinence, those are more neurosurgical red flags. Those are situations where the patients want to be seen by a neurosurgeon to determine if there would be some sort of stabilizing surgery to either reverse those symptoms or prevent them from progressing. So there, there really is a wide spectrum of patients with back pain, for example, with stenosis and how to treat. Um, But between conservative care, like injections, physical therapy, perhaps pain medication, and the other end of the spectrum, which would be something like a multi-level laminectomy infusion, which is big back surgery, um, there is a procedure um, called an interspinous spacer implant. This is a procedure that's been going on for several years. Um, I was one of the first uh, physicians performing that procedure in the central valley. Um, It is an excellent option for the right patient. So like anything, managing the expectation, good patient selection, making sure the patient has a full awareness of how a therapy may be beneficial. And then what are of course the potential risks and adverse consequences of getting a procedure versus other treatments. Uh, The interspinous device placement takes about 15 to 20 minutes for a single level. It's an outpatient procedure. Um, It's typically done in what's called a surgery center. So it's an outpatient facility. Um, It's several hours from arrival to departure for the patient at the facility. A good percentage of patients will feel better that day or within a couple days of the procedure for their typical stenosis related pain. And then there is a percentage of patients where it can take several weeks before they start start to notice improvement in their symptoms. Um, but that is a very small footprint from a treatment standpoint in relation to the other available options.
0: So I want to go back to stenosis because you said something in there that was really quite um, surprising. So you could have this back pain that you've had, you know, for, for any reason. I mean, we'll go into the old age, older age thing in a minute, but the additional pain that they may have in their backside or their legs or something, they're not going to know they have stenosis. They have to come in and, and and get imaging in order to, to that be just so that could be diagnosed, correct? Yes. Okay.
1: So stenosis um, is an imaging study diagnosis. We can interpret based on history of symptoms and physical exam, what we think is going on. Mm-hmm. But imaging studies are straightforward and can provide a wealth of information. Um, probably would start with basic x-rays. Okay. Okay. Um, now the x-rays will show us the bone and it'll show us the spaces between bone such as where the discs and the spinal nerves and the spinal Mm -hmm. cord live Um, but x-ray passes right through the soft tissue structures. so if you had someone that you thought there was stenosis and they had no imaging studies whatsoever reasonable care would be to get x-rays just to make sure there isn't anything else untoward going on and if the x-rays don't show anything uh consequential an MRI study can follow, and that is considered the gold standard imaging study uh, for showing those soft tissue structures that you can't see on an X-ray.
0: Man, technology is fascinating these days. I mean, it's just you know you just you have back pain, you do exercise, you t- take physical therapy, and then hopefully it goes away. So, let's talk about the spacer. So you you mentioned it, it's um, it's a small insertion um, into your back. Mm-hmm. An outpatient which is mind-blowing right there that you could actually have because this is truly a spine surgery correct and you get to go home that same day so um is that you know are there any side effects or are there any um you know uh, i guess my you know you feel good right away i mean what's the downtime for something like that
1: great questions so there's an incision probably about the the length of my thumbnail
0: it's about an inch it's
1: it's Not even. even It's it's, it's a pretty small incision. It is remarkable what technology is capable of these days. Uh, Now, you put a spacer into a patient without stenosis, it's a complete waste of time. It's unnecessary risk. It does nothing for the patient. But when you have a patient with symptomatic neurogenic claudication, right, so that's the pain that comes from stenosis, an ideal candidate for this procedure is someone who has the pain. During ambulation, so standing and walking, and it is pain that improves with forward flexion, so leaning over that shopping cart mm-hmm. or sitting down. Um, that is considered clinically moderate, meaning symptoms can be relieved positionally. There are folks that have severe stenosis across multiple levels, and they don't get better when they flex. Those patients are not candidates for this procedure. This procedure is not likely to work for them. Uh, those are patients that are more likely to need. Uh, more involved and more invasive surgical options, but for the patients where there is clinically moderate and um, uh, rele- uh, clinically moderate pain that is relieved with positional change, those patients are candidates for this procedure. So um, you use X-ray guidance, so that's called fluoroscopic guidance. Patients can get IV sedation, so they can be unaware of and sedated for the procedure with no memory of it. Um, and then you perform the procedure. The instrumentation is provided. Um, it's a titanium spacer with, uh, cam lobes that deploy in between the spinous processes. So to, to try to dial that in with a little more detail, the bones you feel on your back, those are the tips of the spinous processes. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You have an MRI, which helps you understand extent and severity of stenosis from a radiographic standpoint. And then you pick the one or two levels, because this is a procedure approved for one or two levels. Uh, You bring the spacer down in its closed form in between the spinous processes of the level or levels that are most affected.
0: Identified by the, the imaging.
1: Correct. Okay. And then you deploy or open the cam lobes. Uh, between those spinous processes, the device is lined up flush against what's called the spinal laminar junction, which is outside of the spinal canal. And once that device is there, it's there. Um, there's no reason to think that it can or should come out. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, anything is possible and devices can be removed that are put in. Um, the testing for the particular device that I use, which is a Verti- Vertiflex Superion implant, um, They did extensive testing on a large number of patients and they collected five years of data. Um, Most medical devices in the the world of interventional pain and spine surgeries, they collect two-year data because that's how you get the FDA submission and approval process. The company went to the lengths of collecting five-year data just to make sure that this was something worth pursuing. And what can we talk about? Data, you want to be able to say not just I feel better for two weeks or six months, but is there something more to it? Why do something more invasive, in in my perspective, than an injection if it's not going to provide any substantial uh, longer relief or better functional recovery? Um, 60 months, so five years after the test group of patients were implanted, 89% of them were still saying, that they were satisfied that they went through the procedure and would do it again. And the statistics that they used uh, to determine the efficacy and success of this procedure wasn't just how do you feel, right? So everybody, every time a patient comes into the office, it's how do you feel? What is your pain score? And that's standard of care to ask that question because everybody does it, not very scientific. And even from the same patient one visit to the next, it can be quite variable because there's so many factors affecting why we hurt and how we feel that day. But they used functional uh, statistical measures to determine improvements in function, mobility, and quality of life. And there were statistically significant improvements across all measures. So it that really speaks volumes for the value of the therapy. Now, no procedure is without risk. This procedure in the studies was compared to More invasive surgical options because there's really nothing else to compare it to. So it's not quite an apples to apples comparison, but it's pretty close. And although there's, I don't believe there's any zero risk anytime you do a procedure, whether it's an injection or an implantable therapy such as this, but the risk of surgical site complications, overnight hospital stays, um, sequelae of the procedure that leads to other problems down the road was markedly less than the next closest procedure, uh, which was the uh, laminectomy. Wow. So um, risks of the procedure, there's always a risk of bleeding and infection anytime you break skin with a needle. Risk of no benefit, that's not really a risk. It's just that this may not work. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe anything is 100%, uh, you know, We all put our best foot forward. We want to do our very best to identify how a patient may benefit from something that tells us what to offer them, and then you hope that it works. But of course, you know, the human body doesn't always read the textbook, and there is no cookie-cutter approach to every patient. So I don't think anything works 100%, but in my experience so far, this device has been very successful. I'd say above 85% of the patients that I've offered it to have achieved some significant and lasting improvement so far. Um, so
0: let's, let's talk about the patient. Cause you said that, that they come in with this pain. It's not something that's newly developed. They've had it over years. We, you know, I think a lot of people that have had chronic pain just kind of live with it and just kind of go about their day, you know, day to day life. At what point, you know, because you talked about the, when you put the spacer in, you have to have that, that, uh, what was the term used? Sense of, um, relief. Um, you know, like leaning forward, the the shopping cart example you leave and sitting down. So at what point should someone really start to come in and, and ask to see you or another doctor about this interventional procedure?
1: Another good question. Um, that's really very subjective. So lots of patients have variable tolerances for their pain. And that's that's great for the folks that really have a high threshold. And my patients that are proactive and want to be better and try to remain functional, they're usually the ones that do the best uh, because pain gets everybody down in different ways. But the ones the the patients that uh, really seem to do better are the ones that are there saying, look, I want to be better. I want to be functional. And they also have a realistic understanding that Pain management is not about curing chronic pain, right? I don't believe in curing chronic pain. I wish that existed. But the reality is that chronic pain, it's not about cure. It's about managing the symptoms. And can you make a significant dent in their pain? I mean, talking about percentages of pain improvement are all well and good on paper. But the reality is, you know, if a patient is 50% better, which that's going to be different for you or me... Um, A patient that feels significantly better but still has pain, they can pick up their grandchild with less pain. They can walk past the mailbox when they want to go for a walk. Uh, They can tolerate activities outside of the home and not feel like they have to sit every five minutes. So. When a patient should come to the office for evaluation, it's really specific for them. And I wish I could answer that question better, but th- there's just no hard and fast rule. Um, and then I just wanted to circle back real quick because you had asked me about potential risks of the spacer procedure. Oh, yeah. And I, I the other thing I wanted to say is, uh, right, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's still a minimally invasive, although Surgery. outpatient surgical mm-hmm. procedure. Um, risks are low, but there's, again, anything is possible. A patient could be made worse, right? That's always possible. Knock on wood, I haven't seen it. But if the spacer were to go in too deep, you could really injure the patient. And in the studies, when the, when the technique for the procedure was being developed and better understood, and in the initial study, there was one case where um, the physician doing the procedure went too deep with the procedure and it had to be converted to an open surgical procedure. And the reason why is because he wasn't using what's called the lateral view on his x-ray. So everything that I do just about is done under x-ray guidance. And x-ray guidance doesn't mean you're taking one picture in one view and that you think you have it understood. It's a three dimensional interpretation of images from multiple planes. And the spacer procedure is no different. And it's critically important that the physician have a very comfortable working knowledge of the three-dimensional interpretation of the x-ray images because if you're performing a procedure and you're only in one view it may like look good in one view and be completely off the mark in the other so the reason for that situation that happened years ago was because the physician wasn't using the lateral view and he didn't see that so it may sound obvious but you know you need to Whether it's me or anybody else, you need to go to someone that is very comfortable with a working understanding of the three-dimensional interpretation of x-ray images for any procedure such as this because that's what keeps it safer Mm
0: -hmm. and that's
1: what helps to minimize risk. So yeah. I just wanted to circle back to that. No, that's point.
0: great. And you know, the 3D imaging, I mean, that's one thing I would encourage everyone to Google because it's fascinating to see how how that works when you go in for a simple MRI what they can pick up on on those images, it's crazy. Yeah. But um yeah, I've seen some of that uh and I know it's come a long way since the last time I've seen it. So, you know, what what is your your typical patient because I know that you, we talked earlier um before we started and you talked about um you know, as women age, they, they're, and they go through menopause, they're at risk for um, osteoporosis. And, um, and I'm there, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I feel like that not that I feel great, but I know that I need to be starting to watch my, my bone health and my calcium and stuff like that. Is, is that kind of the age both sides of the table with women and men that um, you're starting to see them for this type of thing? Or can it even be a younger individual?
1: For osteoporosis, do you mean? Well, for
0: f- for the pain for the for stenosis um, examination and um, diagnosis, is, is there an age, or is it typically somebody that's that's mid years?
1: So, I see a lot of patients of a wide range of ages, and back pain, as we talked about, can present from so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, the sacroiliac joints, which are just below the lower end of the spine. So those are what most people probably think of as their hip joints on the backside, the Mm -hmm. sacroiliac joints. Those actually when inflamed and or arthritic can cause what patients perceive to be pain coming from the back in up to 20% of patients. Mm -hmm. So really how, how we interpret the pain, the history and the exam that really can cross so many different age ranges. So Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you specifically, but as far as As far as stenosis, stenosis is not something that occurs overnight. Stenosis really is accumulative over many, many years. Patients may present with pain from stenosis, for example, if they have a trip and fall, and then suddenly the the crowding of the nerves in the area or areas of the lumbar spine that were narrowed, or for example, if it's in the neck, they start developing arm symptoms, um, that can just be triggered by an incident. But stenosis takes years to occur. So I do not typically, although I'm sure it's possible, I do not typically see stenosis-type patients that are younger. Okay. Um, Osteoporosis, you had mentioned, that is uh, literally a disease where the bone is not as strong as it once was. And as an example of patients that develop back pain from symptomatic fractures, um, if you have a woman who is past uh, menopause, as you had mentioned correctly, there's less estrogen uh, circulating. That means that there is less calcium being driven into bone. That is where those patients are at a greater risk for osteoporosis. And it's why there's such a push from a preventive health standpoint and just in the community that patients are supplementing, with calcium and vitamin D. Vitamin D helps drive calcium into bones. And if their primary care doctor or other uh, practitioner recommends them to get a bone density study, that is an imaging study that lets the patients know if they are at risk for developing or already have osteoporosis. So that's a medical condition where they have increased fracture risk if they carry the diagnosis. Um, there's different reasons to get osteoporosis. The one we just discussed was The most common, another example would be folks that are on oral steroids for other medical reasons, for one one reason or another, they can develop uh, accelerated osteoporosis from that sort of medication exposure. Um, I do see compression fractures in folks that have, you know, unfortunately, perhaps metastatic disease um, to the spine. Uh, Multiple myeloma is a type of tumor that sometimes we first see it, unfortunately, with a spine fracture and then you do a biopsy of the bone as you're treating it uh, and then they would get subsequent treatment accordingly um, you can also see compression fractures in younger patients related to trauma that's not really an osteoporosis condition that's just a separate reason for it mm-hmm. but patients that present with back pain from symptomatic fractures for whatever reason there are some great options out there to help those folks as well
0: so with the this compression type fracture is, is the spacer that you talked about, is that an option for this or is it a different type of treatment? Uh,
1: the spacer is not indicated for folks with fractures. Okay. Uh, it's a different treatment for a different problems. So if patients have uh, pain pretty much from low back and or buttocks, thighs, legs, and they have stenosis and their symptom history is consistent, and their MRI is consistent, then they may be a candidate for something like the spacer. Uh, Treating a symptomatic compression fracture, that is something from, at least from my perspective, you're gonna treat that very differently than you would treat stenosis because they're totally different situations. Uh, So there's a procedure called vertebroplasty. Uh, The other version of that that's very similar but a little bit different is kyphoplasty. Those procedures have been around for many years, and again, good patient selection, managing expectations. If patients have symptomatic fractures and we have a good symptom history, a good exam and imaging study evidence to back it up, then those fractures can be treated with this procedure or the vertebroplasty kyphoplasty procedure. And it is an outpatient procedure. Patients go home the same day. Like I mentioned before, x-ray guided to ensure that we know exactly what we're doing and where we're doing it. Um, but that is a, a really an excellent option for a lot of folks.
0: So <clears throat> we talked about, you know, the, I don't want to say the, the the more less invasive procedures, but you're a part of a group with a couple other doctors that can, that you work together and collaborate on the, some of the procedures that are a little bit more advanced that would need a neurosurgeon. Is that correct? You have a couple
1: Yes, okay. so um, I'm part of St. Agnes Brain and Spine Institute. I work with Doctors Ian Johnson and Mark Levy, and they're really great guys. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you can put yeah. that in there, but they're, they're, they are—they are they're, they're both great. The these are these are neurosurgeons that, if they think you would benefit from it, it's likely to help. Although nothing's a guarantee, but they really are uh, top quality people, not just mm-hmm. doctors. Um, as far as How we collaborate, I've worked well with them for as long as I've been with them. Uh, They will help get patients to me if they think they're non-surgical or even as a slightly different example, if they are looking to determine what level or levels a particular surgery might be most advantageous for a patient, they might send a patient to me for what's called selective nerve blocks um, to really crystallize the level or levels that they'd want to go after surgically. And when I have patients where I've offered conservative care, and so as an example, or as examples, um, I include in conservative care injection therapy. Injections take a couple of minutes, small footprint, very outpatient oriented Um, but physical therapy and injections as conservative care if patients have appropriately tried and not succeeded with those then they may be candidates for more advanced um, surgical options and so i can get those patients to doctors johnson and levy for their consideration of what to do Um, as far as the vertebroplasty and kyphoplasty procedure um, i've been doing that for well i've been doing that since fellowship so i've been doing that for over 10 years And I've been uh, teaching other docs how to do that, among other procedures, for about the last eight years. And it is, if not the single most effective thing that I offer, it's definitely one of the top two or three. Um, It's a very specific treatment for a specific problem, whether the patient perceives the pain to be chronic or acute. And um, the vast majority go home feeling better.
0: Right away, wow, and the reason i, I brought up the, the the your group there is because I think that you know when making appointments with doctors, sometimes there's a little bit of frustration where oh this do- I'm too severe for this doctor or I'm not severe enough for this doctor, so it's nice to have that group of doctors all there, so you know if they start with you and you get to a point that you know there's not you know it might be something more surgical where it, it, it it's a little bit more um invasive than than I have these other doctors to lean on and vice versa, but best person to start with sounds like you.
1: Well, um, <laughs> that's kind of self-promotion, but sure. Yeah. Um, no, the, our collaboration is great. I'm very satisfied with it uh, from a professional standpoint. And these are people I genuinely like going to work with every day. Uh, I really feel it is very advantageous uh, to patients to have that sort of um, You know, I don't know that symbiosis is the right word, but we have a very good collaborative relationship Mm -hmm. that does enhance and improve the patient's flexibility with getting from one provider to another, making sure that we have a comprehensive eye on how best to care for the patient. Um, So it's it is as you've said that and because I'm more conservative bent. uh, Yes, I mean, if the patient starts with me, then we make sure that more conservative options have been tried prior to moving on
0: which is important that i think that you know from just a patient standpoint i think most people want to go down what is going to be the best treatment before i even consider going into some type of surgery or you know more invasive procedure so, I mean, we talked a little bit about uh, about the back. Is there anything else that you want to talk about when it comes to interventional medicine?
1: I get excited about doing the simplest things that I've been doing for a long time just because of the outcomes that are associated with them. Uh, if a patient comes in with neck pain that goes down the arm and it affects their hand and they have some numbness and tingling and it affects their grip and the exam demonstrates nerve irritation in the neck, doing a cervical epidural steroid injection can very quickly get them to feel much better not a guarantee that it will but it's most likely will happen most of the time mm-hmm. for most patients and then I get the patient well enough to then go into therapy right so an example of something that I think merits the conversation for two minutes um, I have a fair number of patients that come in and I ask them about physical therapy and they're in a lot of pain and they say you know what doc I, I've tried physical therapy it made me worse it hurt and I said but that was prior to any interventional pain management. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the conversation will usually go, well, let's say we can get you better. Is it worth it to you as the patient to circle back to therapy, maybe with a different therapist or not, but to circle back to physical therapy once you feel better enough to tolerate it, you're more likely to succeed with it. And most patients are open to that that thought track. And when I get them feeling better, then for the most part, those patients really do succeed in therapy. And those are the great patients in my mind because I don't see them again or I see them just periodically for checkups because I was able to get them not just feeling better but functionally better. And that has nothing to do with any large or extensive procedure that's just straightforward care for the pain condition that they presented with. Um, So as far as another specific procedure to talk about, I really love what I do. Um, and I'm passionate about it, but I don't need it to be one thing or another specifically to, to address here. Um, you know, now that I said that.
0: <laughs> well, you know, and that says something too. I had, um, and you, it just reminded me of it because I don't have that pain anymore. There's a while back. I don't even remember what I did, but I had back pain. I had an injection. They went in and they said, well, we want you to do therapy. I'm like, I can't even lift my arm over my head. Gave me an injection, went in for physical therapy, haven't been back since. You know, that's you. all that it takes. But you know, you're absolutely right. Sometimes it's just you know getting to getting rid of that pain in order to move forward and get your range of motion or you know whatever back. So yeah,
1: I mean, it's it's really I use the analogy so many times with patients, but it's really peeling back the layer of the onion. Mm-hmm. You know, for chronic pain, there's usually a couple of layers, and you have to go after the most likely um, causative factor. And then if they're mostly better, better enough to then be more functional, there's your success. If they're somewhat better or minimally better, you've gone after one diagnosis, and then it's time to go down the treatment list of of your working diagnoses and your plan to treat the next thing. But it's really, it's very gratifying to get patients better enough to then take care of themselves. And that's, with the injections that's with treating the compression fractures that's with these spacers for spinal stenosis. Um, I do spinal cord stimulation. That's a therapy that's been around literally for decades, but I'd say in the last even seven or eight years, the technology has advanced leaps and bounds and that's a therapy for different types of nerve pain conditions. And again, it's great to just have the conversation with the patient. Um, it's not important to me that they agree with me um, or say, yes, I want to do what you're suggesting. But I love when I share with them my perspective. I let them know about available treatment options and they say, wow, I didn't even know that existed. Hey, let me talk to my family about it. Let's schedule a follow-up to talk about it when you have questions so that we can make sure we're working through the process and giving you as much information as possible. I mean, that for me is the first success with the patient, is opening their eyes to the possibilities and then let them kind of steer things from there.
0: Very well said. I'm ready to come in. I don't have any pain. <laughs> um, you know, that, so that brings me to another question, too. Your, your specialty is fairly rare in our area. Is, is your practice really impacted if somebody wanted to get in? Is it um, a long time? Takes a long time?
1: Okay, so... Um, there are a few folks in town that practice interventional pain management. Um, I would say, not being immodest, that I'm one of the few that does all of the things that we're talking about. Um, but there are some great docs in town, so um, I certainly don't think I'm the only one out there doing some of these things. Um, I would get patients in for a new consultation within one to two weeks. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, unfortunately, things take time and... Right there always tends to be a wait. And you know what, if I'm the patient in pain, even waiting two or three days is sometimes a pretty rough, um, that's a pretty rough road to hoe. But I would say for now, I would work very hard to get patients in within one to two weeks. Uh, The caveat to that would be that if patients really have acute, severe problems, uh, for example, patient being referred from the emergency department or urgent care for a new fracture or a new disc bulge causing what's called a radiculitis, right? So acute sciatica. Um, We really want to get those patients in within about 48 to 72 hours, and I work hard to do that. Um, So... I think that answered the question.
0: No, that's great. And that's amazing that you can get patients in that quickly. So We'll,
1: we'll see if it stays that way, but I'm sure trying. <laughs> maybe
0: not after this, but <laughs> no. But you know, thank you. I know you're busy. I appreciate you coming in and this is a great topic and hopefully we can come back and, you know, maybe talk about nick pain next time.
1: That sounds great. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thank you.